Lord Jesus, King of Kings, we kneel before you this morning but because you have called us to yourself to serve you. We honor you and we say it out loud. You are the king. You alone are king. Your kingdom is forever. Your reign is perfect because you rule with equity and justice because you know the beginning from the end. Because you are motivated by love and mercy rather than by greed or power. Lord Jesus, Redeemer of sinners. There were times this past week when we knew the right thing to do, but we either neglected our duty or we indulged our baser instincts. We regret our sin and we repent and we ask that you would free us from slavery to sin. Release us to live lives that are kind and honorable and useful. Lord Jesus, healer of broken hearts and broken bodies, we pray for the family and friends of Dick Turner and ask that you comfort them as they grieve his passing. We thank you that we knew him, that he was good company, that he was part of this fellowship of sinners. We pray as well for ourselves and those we know who are battling sickness and disease. We ask for healing. We ask for strength. We ask for a palpable sense of your presence during time of trial. Lord Jesus, Prince of Peace, on this weekend as we celebrate the birth of our nation, a nation born in war and often at war, We pray that we would be a people of peace, that we would be at peace with you and at peace with one another. We pray that we might be a generous people, protecting the weak and defending the friendless. We pray that individually we would be committed to the common good and committed to our common creed that all people are created free and equal and that all people are endowed by you and by you alone with inalienable rights. May we be one nation under God. May we be a nation submitted to your divine authority. May we be humble, boasting only of you. These things we pray in the name of Jesus, who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our New Testament reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 14. I will read verses 18 through 31. This is Jesus speaking. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, 
If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do, as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Mr. Kellogg, could you run that film for us? of the Lord be with you. Few of us were alive to hear British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain declare to his nation that peace for our time would result from the agreement that he had negotiated with Adolf Hitler, an agreement which ceded part of the territory and the population of Czechoslovakia to the Nazi state. One year after Chamberlain joined Hitler in signing the 1938 Munich Agreement, Germany invaded Poland and declared war on Great Britain and France, and Europe descended into years of horrific war. And as the war ground on, modern, liberal, Enlightened Europeans woke up from their dogmatic slumber and discovered there really is no depth to which the human heart won't sink. Even the nice, civilized 
European heart. Peace is a tremendous blessing. And no one values peace more than those who have suffered through war. I spent a year and a half working with my Uncle Stanley to write a memoir of his experience in World War II. Never once did he describe that war or his actions in it in heroic terms. For him, the war was wretched and stupid and a degrading waste of human life, an unavoidable misery that had to be faced. All he wanted was to get home to Philadelphia. Peace is a tremendous blessing. We all want it. We want peace in our world and in our neighborhoods and in our families and in our own hearts and minds. We want to be able to go to bed at night at peace, with peace with God and peace with the world and peace with our wives. We want to be able to lie down in our beds and know that we've done well, that we've worked hard and that there's nothing that can't wait until the morning. What we hate are those restless nights of fretting and frustration and worry and scheming when our minds are racing to try to figure out what to do with all of the junk that's flying at us. Sometimes we feel genuinely under attack. Sometimes those attacks are from blind forces of nature or society, sickness in our bodies, storms brewing overhead, economies that do flips and turns. Those can be genuinely worrisome. But even worse than those attacks from blind forces are attacks from people, from individuals motivated by God only knows what malicious designs. And it usually is people we know, co-workers and neighbors, church members and family. And yes, most shocking of it all, of all, sometimes we're attacked by the person we married. The one person in all the world who took a public vow to love, honor, cherish, and protect you, that's the one person who's up in your grill, who's giving you a hard time, who's saying all kinds of horrible things about you, the one person who should be building you up, and you feel like they're tearing you down. It's crazy. Now, I'm sure that's never happened to any of us sitting here this morning, but perhaps you've read about that in a novel or seen it in a movie. Peace is a tremendous blessing. Because only when we have peace can we stretch the wings of our souls and minds and do the things that we long to do. Do the things that we were designed to do, to build and to create, to eat and to enjoy, to love and to take delight. Peace is the precondition of living the life that we were intended to live by God. So let's start with that basic truth. God made us. And he equipped us to do wonderful things. We are not the product of chance thrown up on the beach of an indifferent universe. Our lives count. Our lives are important. Our lives have a purpose. God knows us and he's watching us. We cannot, however, realize or accomplish our purpose if we are not at peace. If we're at war, we can't be creative. If we're embattled, we can't be productive. And as Christians, we are especially called to be people of peace. People who are actively engaged in the business of creating peace in our individual spheres of influence. Now, I think that sometimes we make the mistake of worrying about things that are not actually in our control and overlooking the things that we can do. It is not within my power 
to bring an end to the Syrian civil war. There's not much I can do about getting North and South Korea back together, but there are things that I can do closer to home. And so I think most of us need to focus our peace efforts on the home front and watch the ripples of peace radiate out from where we live. In our gospel reading this morning in verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so what I want to do this morning is to talk about peace, God's peace and the world's peace and our peace. And if I do my job right, we should leave here knowing how to be at peace with God. How to be at peace with other people, how to be at peace with ourselves. So let's begin. This sermon will have some bad news and it will have some good news. So let me begin with the bad news. Let me begin by pointing out the disappointing news that the reason that we even have to talk about peace, peace with God, peace with other people, peace with ourselves, is because we are by nature enemies of God. Is because we are by nature hostile to God. That is right. That is what scripture teaches. The reason we have a peace problem in this world is because we are by nature at war with God. The reason the Bible even needs to talk about peace is because we are by nature hostile toward our creator. Now I know that sounds extreme. I know that we are all lovely people here. After all, we drive hybrid cars and we keep our lawns mowed. We recycle our Perrier bottles and we eat locally sourced organic food. We send our children to cooperative playgroups and teach them to say please and thank you. And my goodness, we're even in church on the 4th of July weekend. How can the pastor say that we are by nature enemies of God? That just doesn't make sense. Let me clarify what I'm saying before you head for the exits. There was a time when we did have peace with God. It was in the Garden of Eden before the fall. But when we chose to sin, we set our face against God and against his will. We went to war with God. It is our natural self in our fallen condition which is at war with God. But in Christ, we are reconciled with God. Reconciled means that enemies become friends. Nothing is so sweet as when former enemies lay down their arms and instead walk arm in arm. That's what Christ came into this world to accomplish, a reconciliation between God and us. And so we who are in Christ are no longer enemies of God. We are instead his friends and adopted children. People in their natural condition, in their fallen condition, in the condition we find ourselves in before we repent and turn to God and receive his forgiveness and restoration into the family of God. People who find themselves in that condition are not only at war with God, but they are also at war with each other and with themselves. And so the good news, the big news is that when we are reconciled to God, we can also be reconciled to one another. And that's why Christians are called to be peacemakers. That's why after our prayer of confession each Sunday, we hear the words of assurance that we are pardoned by faith in Jesus Christ. And then we pass the peace with each other. It's a simple act. It's a ceremonial act. 
The passing of the peace is not a welcome time or a greeting time. It's a time when we, through this simple ritual, recognize that because we're okay with God, we can also be okay with each other. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me talk a little bit more about the bad news. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian and the first president of what is now Princeton University, wrote these words in 1736. Quote, People in general will own or admit that they are sinners. There are few whose consciences are so blinded that they are not sensible or aware that they have been guilty of sin. And most sinners will own that they have bad hearts. They will own that they do not love God so much as they should. That they are not so thankful as they ought to be for his mercies. That in many things they fail. And yet... Few of them are sensible that they are God's enemies. They do not see how that can truly be so, for they are not sensible that they wish God any harm or endeavor to do him any injury. End quote. While we might admit that we don't always do the right thing, Edwards says that few of us are willing to see that we are by nature God's enemies. So let's hear what it is that scripture has to say. In James 4.4 we read, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James, the brother of Jesus, uses this word world or cosmos in Greek to indicate the entire system of beliefs and attitudes that opposes God's rule. The world does what it wants to do rather than doing what God designed it to do. And so when we follow the world, which is really just following our old unredeemed selves, we fight God every step of the way. In Romans 8, 5-7 through 7, we read, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Now, the Apostle Paul uses this word flesh, sarks in Greek, to indicate not the body in particular, but the human heart in its unredeemed state. Flesh and world go together in biblical language. When we follow the flesh, when we follow the world, we are pulling in the opposite direction from where God wants us to go. And so there's a battle. That's the bad news. Now hear the good news. In Romans 5, 8 through 10, the Apostle Paul reminds redeemed Christians that we once were in the flesh... We once were of the world, we once were hostile to God, but that God, because he loved us in spite of our rebellion, created a way for us to be reconciled with him. He made a path for us so that we don't have to keep fighting him, but can return to him and enjoy his embrace. Here's what Paul writes. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Those few verses 
are the heart of the gospel. God's love moves toward us while we are enemies of God. And God's love for us can overcome our enmity toward Him. God makes an offer of reconciliation. He extends us an olive branch, even though we are the ones who have started the fight. Because He doesn't want us to be enemies. Because He wants us to be His friends and His children. My best friend in high school was Joey Patterson. We had spent years together palling around. And then in my junior year, I did something really ratty. I betrayed him in a way that was really lousy, so lousy, in fact, that I'd rather not talk about it. And that broke our friendship. Well, to be a little clearer, I broke our friendship. Even though deep down, I wanted that friendship. But once I had betrayed him... The friendship was gone and I was too ashamed and too proud to admit that it was my fault and that I had been a complete jerk. Our paths crossed again a decade later at a high school reunion. I knew that he was going to be there and so I successfully avoided him all evening among the couple of hundred of people who were at that event. My guilt and my shame wouldn't let me go to him and say hello. And so he came to me. And he found me, and he said, I really missed you all this time. That is what God does for us. He seeks us out. He wants a reconciliation, even though he is the offended party, and we've been slinking around avoiding him. God seeks us out. He wants this reconciliation so much that he died on a cross to pay the penalty for all of the ratty, lousy things that we have ever done. Paul makes this point in Colossians 1, 21 and 22, where he says to redeemed Christians, to people who have been put right with God, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, now listen to this, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Let me say that again. Holy, blameless, and above reproach. That's the opposite of shame and guilt. It was my shame and my guilt which kept me away from Joey Patterson. I knew that what I had done was wrong. I sacrificed that friendship so that I wouldn't have to own up to it. That's the bargain I struck. It's a dumb bargain, but it's a common one. Our hostility toward God is natural. It's rooted in our fallen condition. We're born that way. We're born selfish and stiff-necked and idol-making. All of those things turn us against God and make us hostile to the program that He has for our lives. But in spite of that, because of His love for us, God wants peace with us. He wants to restore the relationship. Paul writes in Romans 5.1, Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified is a legal term. It means to be guiltless before God. When we're justified in the eyes of the judge, we've done nothing wrong. We've done everything right. No blame can be assigned to us. And it is by faith in Christ that we are justified with God. 
When we believe in Jesus, we trust his sacrifice. There no longer is any guilt or shame for us. We are square with God. We're right with God. And we're at peace with God. So let me talk about peace with other people. I believe that we can't really have peace with other people until we have peace with God. Because part of having peace with God is that the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of us and begins to make us less selfish. We begin to spend less time worrying about defending our rights or insisting upon what is owed to us. And we become generous. And we become forgiving. And surprise, surprise, when we start acting that way, we start getting along better with other people. In Romans twelve eighteen, Paul says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Paul's no fool, of course. He's a worldly man. He's traveled all over the civilized world at that time. He knows that there are bad people in the world, people who will do you wrong. But his instructions to Christians is that we be peaceable and that we get along with people. Really, this is nothing more than the fulfillment of the commandment to love your neighbor as you love yourself. If we're as concerned about the welfare and the well-being of other people as we are about ourselves, then we will be the kind of people that other people want to be around. Let me finish up by talking about how we can have peace with ourselves. I don't know that we as humans have fundamentally changed since Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself, but there's actually a small problem in that commandment. On the one hand, it makes perfect sense. We naturally look out for our own interest. We are naturally selfish. And so if I love other people as much as I love myself, if I look out for other people as much as I look out for myself, then I will treat them well. But on the other hand, there are lots of times when we don't like ourselves so much. When we're not satisfied with who we are, we don't think we're beautiful enough or smart enough. We don't think we're doing a good job as a parent. We don't think we measure up to our more successful friends. We're not as spiritual as we ought to be. A lot of the pastoral concerns that I deal with in this church are with people who are not at peace with who they are. On the positive side of that concern is a desire to develop and to grow and to improve, all of which are good things. Paul describes the Christian life as a race, one to be run as long as we're alive. And I do want to encourage all of you to be thinking about where God is leading you, what the next steps in your life are, what new levels of competence and holiness you can reach. But on the negative side of that kind of concern is a debilitating paralysis. And despair. Oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, things are just never going to change for me. While I know that life can be hard and that life is full of all kinds of difficulties and setbacks and sorrows, I am firmly convinced that the Christian life is the sweetest thing this side of heaven. I feel so sad for people who are missing out. I believe our lives should be satisfying and filled with joy, that we should be rich with relationships and meaningful work, that we should be thrilled every day by God's creation and honored to be part of God's plan for this world. And yet so many Christians are not at peace with themselves. Let me offer just a couple of words of encouragement and counsel if you're looking for greater peace in your own heart and mind. 
Number one, find your identity in Christ. Don't take your identity from your world, from the family, what people say to you, about you. Find your identity in Christ. What I know about you is that you are deeply loved by God, that you are known by Christ, that you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and that you are part of God's eternal plan. You are not an accident, and God is no idiot. When we're not feeling the love that we want or that we need from those who are around us, let's go back to God who loves us like crazy. If we weren't loved by our parents the way we should have been loved, we can let God be our father and heal that wound. So point number one, find your identity in Christ. Point number two, keep preaching the gospel to yourself. If you're feeling guilty about your past sins or your present struggles with sin, and, and let me remind you again, because sometimes you people forget that Christians continue to sin. This congregation is a fellowship of sinners. We're also saints who are redeemed, but we continue to struggle with sin. If you're feeling guilty about past sins or present struggles with sins, remind yourself that you have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. His death was powerful. It defeated your sin. It defeats death. And you have nothing left to prove with God. God accepts you wholeheartedly because of what Jesus did. Trust the atonement. God accomplished once and for all at the cross and stop trying to atone for your own sins. You can't make up for your sins and shortcomings and you shouldn't try. Because if you are trying to make up for your sins and shortcomings, you're saying that what Jesus did isn't good enough. And let me assure you, it is. Just leave it at that. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ through faith, if you have committed yourself to follow Him obediently, then you're fine with God. There's nothing left to prove. So give yourself a break and stop trying. On the eve of His own death, Jesus said to His disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I want all of us to have that peace today. I want us to feel it down in our bones. I want that peace to make you steady and free and filled with joy and filled with wonder. Peace with God by having your sins forgiven. So that you can come to Him and not be afraid of Him. Peace with others because you act toward other people out of the love and peace that's been shown to you. Peace with yourself. Because you know that God loves you and receives you into His embrace. It's a sweet place to be. Now, one final hiccup before we close. If you're anything like me... The one thing that will keep you from finding the peace that God offers, the one thing that will keep you from that blessing is pride. Pride that wants to hide its sin and shame and guilt. Pride that can't admit that it has a problem. Pride that's afraid to ask for help. 
My pride kept me away from Joey Patterson for a decade. My pride kept me away from God for even longer. So here's my charge to you this morning. Don't be a dummy like I was. Don't be a dummy. Run to Jesus. God invites you to come to Him just the way you are this morning. You don't have to fix yourself before you go to God. He receives us the way that we are. He receives us broken and damaged and He loves us. Fixing ourselves is not our job. That is God's job. Come to Jesus and know His love and peace. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that we can call you Father. Thank you that you opened that way for us through Jesus Christ. We thank you that you pursued us and hounded us and found us out. Lord, we pray that you not give up on us, that you keep after us, that you keep chasing us. Lord, we pray that we might rest in the peace that comes from knowing that you are our Father and that we are reconciled with you. Lord, I pray that we might have peace of mind in our lives. I pray that we might extend peace to those around us. Lord, I pray that we might be agents of peace in, in the world that, that we touch. And Lord, I pray that you be honored and glorified and that your will would be accomplished in our lives and in this world. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.